welcome to the Plant-Centered and Thriving Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Kitchens. I'm a plant-based registered dietitian and virtual nutrition mentor. I was raised on an Angus cattle farm, grew up with a lot of GI issues, and used the power of plant-based eating to promote healing. Here, you'll find inspiration, ideas, and encouragement for your own plant-based journey. I'm so thrilled you're here today. Let's get started. Welcome to the show. My name is Ashley, and I'm so glad you're here today. Part of the reason is because we're talking about a little bit of a controversial topic, and I feel like you can already guess what that probably is. We're talking about soy. So I have been following Dr. Nagra for a little while on social media and he had put out this reel on soy. And I was like, I have to have him on the show to talk about soy because there's so much misinformation out there when it comes to soy. And so who better to talk about it than Dr. Matthew Nagra, who is a naturopathic doctor devoted to bringing the most up-to-date evidence-based nutrition information to his patients at his clinic in Vancouver and also on social media, which I'm so thankful for. In 2018, he graduated from the Boucher Institute of Naturopathic Medicine after completing his bachelor's of science in microbiology at the University of Victoria. He's certified in plant-based nutrition through E. Cornell and the T. Colin Campbell's Center for Nutrition Studies. Dr. Nagra is also a public speaker and is known for his content across multiple social media platforms, which he shares all of those with us at the end of our conversation. And we included all of those links below so that if you want to connect with Dr. Nagra, you can do so really, really easily. So on these social media platforms, like I said, he often tackles misinformation around diet and nutrition and deep dives into the latest nutrition research. So I highly recommend following him just because he is a reliable source, especially when it comes to plant-based nutrition information. I don't know about you, but I cannot wait for this conversation. So gear up and let's welcome Dr. Nagra to the show and let's bust some myths when it comes to soy. Welcome to the show, Dr. Nagra. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. We are so excited to have you here. We're thrilled to bust some soy myths. It's a pretty controversial topic. I don't know if it really needs to be, but we'll get into that. And before we do, I'm really curious personally, and I know the listener is too, because we love listening to stories and how people transition to plant-based or veganism. So could you kind of just give us a little background on how you got into plant-based eating? Yeah. Um, you know, when I was younger, um, I had some health issues. I uh, struggled with weight management. I had asthma, um, allergies were, were quite bad at, at, uh, at least in the springtime, you know, just, just things like that. And I started working with a personal trainer in my early teens, around 14 or so. Um, and he really pushed more of a plant-based approach. Uh, he was actually very much into like raw foods and things like that too, but, uh, but largely plant-based, uh, focused. And I being so young, didn't really take too much of what he said to heart. Um, but there was a point where he wanted me to record everything that I ate, uh, like a food diary, um, for a period of a couple of weeks. And I just didn't want him to really see how bad my diet was because it wasn't good. It was a lot of, um, you know, your sugary cereals, fruit roll-ups, mac and cheese, McDonald's, like all that kind of stuff. And um, so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to revamp my diet and really impress them with this, you know, uh, healthier diet. So at that point, I cut out the dairy, the milk, absolutely. I, I 
you know, a few things with a little bit of dairy might have snuck in here or there, but uh, for the most part, got rid of that. I got rid of all of more of the classic kind of junk food, sugar sweetened beverages like sodas and whatnot, potato chips, that kind of thing. And then um, I ate a lot more plants, having a lot of smoothies. Um, I still had a little bit of meat, but definitely cut down. And I started feeling better. I was losing weight, energy is up, skin was clearing up. And I just thought, well, you know, maybe there's something to this. Maybe there is something there. And and I should really you know, learn more and, and kind of dive deeper on that. And so I stuck with it from then on and just learned more and more over the next even couple of years. And there were periods where I was like strict, uh, you know, strictly plant-based uh, throughout that. And then it was when I went to university and I started, you know, getting into cafeteria food and drinking with my friends on the weekends and, and that, that I noticed, you know what, my health is kind of sliding back the other way a little bit. I'm maybe not feeling as energetic as I was. Um, and there was a point in my second semester where I just decided, you know what, I'm, I'm cutting it. I'm going hundred percent and you know, have been ever since. Nice. So you started this journey before you even started training to become a doctor. It sounds like, oh yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah. Wow. That's wonderful. So how did that impact your, your time at university? How was that for you being plant-based and learning all that you um, did? You know, it's a lot different than it is nowadays, for sure. I mean, I go back, I, I hang out with friends in Victoria where I went to school and um, there's just so many options everywhere now. Uh, back then there was one you know, cafe I would go to downtown. They have, you know, these like vegan desserts and stuff that I'd try out. Actually, one time I got a bunch of friends. I got them all hooked on the, the vegan desserts, even though they, yes. they weren't vegan. So we'd, <laughs> we'd go and we ordered like a huge cake one time. I remember that and we had split it and, and that was pretty funny. And just to be clear, I wasn't eating cakes and things like that all the time, but it was, it was the one, uh, the one kind of place to go outside of whatever I was preparing myself. And so I had a Vitamix in my room, actually, I was very fortunate to have that I had a little mini fridge in my room that I would stock up uh, with whatever I could. And then at the cafeteria, I just had really limited options. I know they had a, a salad bar that I would pick from and you know, they'd have the, the, you know, greens, the veggies, the chickpeas, or whatever, uh, some grains, I think it was quinoa, I can't remember. And I would just load those up and use all my food points or whatever they were at the time, yep. and, um, just get whatever I could. And that was kind of it. I, I lived on on that sort of a, a diet for quite a period. And, you know, now, like I said, I go back and it's just, it's totally different. There's, there's so many more options everywhere, including on camp, on campus. That's wonderful. I mean, that's so encouraging that there are just more options available to people who are plant-based or vegan or vegetarian. Um, Cause yeah, when I went to school for a decade ago, there were no options. So yeah. yeah. Yep. Understandable. Well, great. So let's dive right in to soy, but before we even get into the details and bust some myths and everything, what can you kind of just define like what soy is or where does it come from or how do we consume it as consumers? Yeah. I mean, soy is, is literally just a bean. You know, I don't know. Everyone gets so wrestled about it. It's, it's, it's just a bean. Uh, it's been consumed in especially Asian cultures for you know, thousands of years uh, at this point, very long time. And it's used in a whole host of ways, right? We have soy sauce, obviously that's pretty common. Um, we have tofu, tempeh, you know, whole soybeans in the form of say edamame. You have soy milk, you have uh, soy curls, which I'm just in love with. Uh, textured vegetable protein or soy chunks, sometimes they're called, uh, which are little kind of meaty substitutes, very much like the soy curls. You know, there's a lot of different uses for it. And then we also have the soybean oil that tends to be used a lot in more processed foods. That's it's very common in that sort of food. So uh, yeah, it's it's used everywhere in a variety of ways. And depending on how you consume it, like if you're consuming it in the form of 
ultra processed foods on a regular basis, yeah, not going to be so good for you. But uh, obviously, we're going to be talking more about when you're having the tofu or the edamame or the soy milk and so on. Yep. More of like the whole food sources and more of probably what is used in studies when like a lot of these studies that have been going on for decades, or like you said, soy has been around for such a long time. Mm -hmm. It's also been heavily researched for a long time, which is wonderful. And I like Dr. Nagra that you said, soy is literally just a bean. Like that's what it is. It's not this like magical or detrimental thing that we're putting into our body, which speaking of, you know, there's this kind of question of like, well, does soy have estrogen in it? I think there's a lot of mm-hmm. misconception out there of like, what, what, where's the fear coming from and the misinformation coming from? So I guess, could you just clear that up? Like does soy yeah. have estrogen? Yeah. So soy, like I said, it is just a bean. It actually does have some unique properties though. And one of those properties is the concentration of what are called phytoestrogens. That's one word for it. it it's you know, I almost wish it was a different name just because people get so confused by it. I mean, you can call them isoflavones or you can break them down into the individual types of isoflavones, which are just flavonoids. They're compounds that are in a lot of foods. You know, there's this idea that because it has a similar structure to estrogens, that it's going to cause an estrogenic response in our body. And they do actually bind to some of the same receptors in our body that estrogen does, but they don't act the same way. So we have estrogen receptors, we have different types of estrogen receptors. And when these isoflavones bind to them, they actually bind much weaker and, and, um, and have much less of an effect on them compared to our own estrogen, the estrogen that our bodies produce. So strength wise, you're looking at about one, one hundredth to one, one thousandth of strength. So they're very weak in that sense. Now, what's interesting is because they bind, they prefer to bind to certain receptors, specifically estrogen receptor beta is what it's called. I typically call them beta receptors. It's just a little easier. Those receptors can have anti-estrogenic effects in breast tissue, which is a good thing. Too much estrogen in breast tissue can promote breast cancer. So having an anti-estrogenic effect can actually reduce risk of breast cancer. And I'm sure we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, But then having, say, pro-estrogenic response in bone tissue where you want estrogen. Right. That actually helps maintain bone marrow density, which is really important, especially for uh, women as they age. So it just doesn't act the same way. And a lot of the concerns just come from that name, you know, the, the name of the phytoestrogen. Uh, and in part from, you know, studies on rodents where they feed them just absurd amounts of these isolated uh, phytoestrogens and they might have, you know, negative effects from that. Or there are a couple case studies of some men who are consuming uh, I, you know, off the top of my head, I think it was somewhere in the ballpark of like 12 to 20 servings of soy a day and potentially ran into issues with that. Uh, but we also have, um, you know, multiple meta-analyses now looking at either men or women uh, consuming varying amounts of soy where, you know, these are randomized controlled trials. So people are fed either, you know, soy products or something else for comparison. And you actually don't see a significant impact on say testosterone or estrogen levels in either men or women. So we have actually really solid research suggesting that, no, it doesn't have this crazy impact on your um, sex hormone levels, uh, while actually, you know, a lot of those concerns coming from very, very, very low quality research. Mm, yes. I, I like that you said that I wish it wasn't labeled like a phytoestrogen. Cause I, I agree with that. I feel like there's just a lot of confusion yeah. and obviously those words are very similar. So it creates a lot of confusion. Um, so you're saying that even a positive estrogenic effect isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like it sounds like there's some oh. positives that come from it and it's a really, it can be a really weak effect as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you think about, um, you know, women in menopause, they often go on, um, you know, estrogen therapy. Well, 
there's actually some research on these isoflavones and using them in that sort of a, uh, or isoflavones, phytoestrogens. I'm going to use those interchangeably for anyone listening. I, I probably will throughout this. Um, there's some research on those actually being supplemented and improving certain menopausal symptoms as well. So it can have beneficial effects for sure. Um, it's, it's not necessarily harmful. And in fact, the research we have suggests that it is predominantly beneficial. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I, and you kind of mentioned this, you know, soy has been around for such a long period of time. We've had, we have people, cultures all around the world who've been consuming it for, like you said, over a thousand years. So how did it, you know, even more recently, and I would say in the past century, in the past few decades, how did it become controversial or where did that kind of start? Or what are some things that happened that maybe blew up in the media? I mean, well, one of them is that estrogen, you know, phytoestrogen, the terminology there for sure. You know, a part of it is, well, you know, it's, it's in everything. It's in a lot of processed foods too. And, you know, it's the same thing we see with a lot of oils, right? Soybean oil being one of them that, oh, because these foods as a whole have a negative impact on your health or can have a negative impact on your health, therefore the individual components do too. But to really push back on that, I always say, well, the main ingredient in Coca-Cola is water. Does that mean water is bad for you? No, of course not. Um, so it's, we have to look at research on the individual components and seeing, you know, what sort of effect does this have? You know, for all we know, it could actually be worse if you took the same processed foods, but put butter in instead. Right. Um, so that's a part of it. Um, there's certainly a lot of, you know, skepticism around GMOs and things like that. But funny thing is most of, uh, most of the soy meant for human consumption isn't GMO anyway. That's mostly what we're feeding off to, uh, or at least directly for human consumption. It's mostly what we're feeding to, to animals or potentially using in processed foods. In fact, I don't know that I can find any products here like tofu and whatnot that aren't labeled non-GMO. And even then, not convinced it's a concern. So, yeah. um, so like, you know, either way, it doesn't really matter. But if one had that concern, it just doesn't seem like it's even a valid concern uh, because it's not really in anything. I, I think there's a variety of ways that, that this is happening. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if a part of it is a lot of meat industry pushing concerns. Like I've looked at um, certain website, Weston A. Price, for example, uh, not that they're necessarily meat industry, but they definitely promote that consumption pattern. A lot of their references around soy are, are like, quite frankly, hilarious when you look at it. It's just the title will say, oh, it causes heart defects or something. And then you look at the study and it's like in rodents fed, again, absurd amounts of isoflavones. It's, it's just, it's, it's really almost dishonest in the way that it's presented. And I, I appreciate you highlighting that because there are so many nutrition studies coming out every, every single day, um, like a hundred, over a hundred thousand a year. And so to also know and recognize where your information is coming from, who is giving you this information and maybe what studies they're using is always helpful as well, because you just never know the quality of the study, or if they are just nitpicking single ingredients and maybe adapting the study to fit what they want to talk about that type of thing. Yeah, you can you can find a study to support anything. I, I could I could throw some studies at you right now showing that smoking doesn't cause lung cancer. You know what I mean? Like it, it's not that hard to find. It's just you have to look at the totality of the evidence, the highest quality research. What does that point to? Is it consistent? Do you see it in a variety of populations? You know, when you're seeing all of these different you know studies that are conducted in a certain way in in you know varying populations with varying levels of intake and whatnot, all pointing in the same direction, you can be pretty confident that that's the right conclusion. 
Yep. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So let's get into these four common soy myths and let's bust them. So the first one, which you touched on just a little bit is that soy causes breast cancer. Maybe it increases your risk for breast cancer. Yeah. So I I already touched on the whole estrogen kind of uh, confusion there and how it can actually have anti-estrogenic effects in breast tissue. Well, the you know funny thing is when we look at research, especially in Asian populations on soy consumption and risk of breast cancer, you actually see higher soy consumption associated with a lower risk of developing breast cancer. Now we don't see that as often in Western populations, but you know, just to throw a question at you, do you, do you know why? I would imagine it has to do with the way that we consume soy or just our diet in general. So that's usually what people think. And that might have that might play into it a little bit, but it's actually not the main one. It's the amount, you know, we're, when, when we're comparing high versus low consumption in Asian populations, you're typically looking at like daily versus like once a week or something, right? It's a pretty big range Yeah. in, in Western populations. When you're looking at soy consumption, it's like once a week versus once a month. And, you know, having soy once a week, isn't going to do much for your breast cancer risk. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the key things to look at with any nutrition research, whether you're looking at red meat and cardiovascular disease, you're looking at soy and breast cancer is, did this study actually capture a wide variety of intakes? You know, even with red meat, if you look at Asian populations, you're often comparing like two servings a week versus like one serving a month or something. Whereas red meat is typically harmful when it's a daily thing, when you're having a a full serving a day kind of thing. Um, And so, uh, it's the same type of thing here. So that's the main reason there are potentially reasons to the way that we consume it, uh, potentially some, you know, speculation around some of the gut microbes that we have and the way that you break down. So I could be different between populations. And, uh, but at the end of the day, those likely have smaller impacts than the overall contrast in, in the level of intake. So that would be it. And then, um, I'll add on top of just the risk of developing breast cancer. We actually have research on breast cancer survivors or people who've been diagnosed with breast cancer. And you actually see higher survival rates in the um, people who consume more soy. So even amongst people with breast cancer, while we don't have a ton of research, the research we do have suggests that it's actually beneficial for them to be eating more soy as well. Ah, fascinating. So really, you know, when we're looking at the population in the U S like you said, a big difference is like how often we consume soy versus maybe some of these other populations who have lower rates of breast cancer or who are living longer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and they're just, like I said, they, they just, they consume it very regularly and we don't. So yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's true. Probably because we're scared to consume it. No, I, I know yeah. that's part of it. That, but... That's probably a part of it. It's a, yeah. a part of it's cultural. It's just not been a part of our diets. You know? Yes, absolutely. I know. I remember seeing uh, tofu. This was like a, a decade ago at a, at a buffet. And I was like, who would eat that? You yeah. know, it was just like, it looked like the most unappetizing thing. And now I just can't get enough of it. So I can definitely yeah. see that. Yep. All right. So let's go into myth number two in that soy causes men's breasts to grow. So this is something that I kind of, uh, already touched on too. You know, this idea that, that men can grow breasts, actually that specifically comes from one case study on a guy who was again, consuming ridiculous amount of soy. And they found that he was developing some breast tissue, got rid of the soy and it decreased, but this is a ridiculous amount that he was eating. Um, when we look at, again, research on, you know, randomized controlled trials, we have, we have a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. I think it was 43 randomized controlled trials. I could be a little off on that. It might actually be a little bit higher somewhere in that ballpark published in 2020. And you actually see that 
there isn't significant impact on testosterone or estrogen levels, with, whether high, uh, whether you're looking at higher soy consumption or lower soy consumption, um, measured as the amount of phytoestrogens they're taking in. So I don't see any reason to be concerned about that. There's simply no good data to suggest that that is something that would occur. And in fact, the best available research that we have suggests that it isn't something that occurs. And unfortunately, a lot, a lot of where we get our information, our data is social media. So when you have one story, like the mm -hmm. person that you're talking about, which blew up, you know, on, I don't know if social media was really that popular back then, but like just yeah. on the media in general, you know, that spread like wildfire and also, also created a lot of fear or concern that maybe it could happen to you know, my, my brother or my dad or someone like that. Yeah, no, it's, it's something that I, I kind of wrestle with almost daily or at least weekly in my clinic with, you know, patients that come in, they've heard certain things and we end up, you know, breaking down the whole soy topic because it's just so common. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's jump into myth number three, which you've touched on a little bit, Dr. Nagra, but soy does, does it affect our hormone levels and you can kind of touch on, you know, which hormones specifically. Yeah. So with most, uh, you know, testosterone with estrogen levels, um, whether men or women, there's nothing, uh, there's not a clinically relevant effect from every, you know, bit of the, the at least higher quality research we've seen, the meta-analyses on randomized controlled trials. Um, there just really isn't. Now, I think uh, if, if I look at the questions here, one of the hormones you listed was thyroid. And I think that's a kind of a good stepping off point here because we've kind of covered the other ones already. Um, with thyroid health, now this is interesting. So soy is one of the foods and there are a variety of them, um, like uh, broccoli and, and that family of vegetables can also do this they can inter interfere with iodine uptake in the thyroid and they can actually cause a goiter. So it can cause hypothyroidism and, and kind of growth of a, a lump there in the throat. Um, well, we first saw that with soy back in, I think it was the fifties or sixties where they were using soy-based formulas for infants who maybe couldn't have cow's milk formula and they were developing goiter. Well, the issue was they weren't getting any iodine. There wasn't iodine in the soy formula at the time. Now, iodine is found in dairy products, but what most people don't actually know is it's not inherent to dairy products. It's actually because they clean the udders with iodine. And so uh, it really? kind of gets itself that way. Yeah. I didn't know yeah, that. So, <clears throat> yeah. So, th so that, that's uh, at least my understanding of, of where yeah. it mostly comes from. Um, but with soy, so since that time, they found that, okay, well, when these infants develop goiter and then you, um, you give them iodine, you can actually reverse it. And so now they fortify soy milk or soy formulas. And um, I wish they would do soy milk. They, uh, most plant milks actually aren't fortified with iodine. I, I wish they would, but, uh, but soy formulas anyway are fortified with iodine to, um, to prevent that issue. So when we look at say adults and soy consumption, sure, if your iodine intake is very low, you could run into issues, but just make sure your iodine intake is adequate. And the main source of iodine in most people's diet is gonna be iodized salt. So salt is typically iodized, unless you're choosing, say, Himalayan salt or other sea salt or whatever, then it doesn't have added iodine. So I'm fully an advocate for iodized versions of salt, or uh, of course, supplement is a reasonable option in its place. Um, so, uh, so that would be, I, I think, covering most of the thyroid issues. Oh, and actually for people with hypothyroidism who might be taking medications for it, um, super important to um, you know, separate the medication from when you're consuming soy or really mo a lot of other foods too. So a lot of doctors will recommend having it on an empty stomach and, and uh, definitely speak with your doctor if you are you know, changing your diet or, or taking any medications like that, just to, to make sure they're in the loop. But uh, um, that I think covers the thyroid topic pretty well. Yeah. I, and I appreciate you kind of going into detail there because I think 
it sounds like it's almost like there's something else going on. It's not, it's not just the soy that's an issue. It's maybe there's a lack of an, another nutrient like iodine in your diet, or maybe you already have a thyroid issue or concern where there, you just need to be a bit more careful or cautious mm-hmm. with your soy consumption or how you're consuming soy or when. Yeah, I guess. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Great. So last but not least myth number four, soy should be consumed in limited quantities. And the reason I asked this Dr. Nagra is I heard another influencer talk about how soy should only be consumed maybe once a month, once a week at max. And I was in an uproar. I did not say anything, but yes. So could you kind of clarify that for us? I was just thinking of how I probably would have said something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, um, yeah. So soy is like, there just isn't a good reason to be concerned about it up to you know, any reasonable amount of five servings a day, six or like, I just don't see any real concern for that. Um, I would say even well beyond that. Now, if someone wants to be extra cautious, okay, that's fine. I I don't see most people going above four or five servings a day anyway, simply because, um, then you're crowding out other things, right? That's, that's the concern. If you're eating so much of one food that you're not getting much of other things, um, you know, you you want your nuts and seeds, you want your vegetables, you want your fruits, whole grains, you want to have that good mix. Um, then uh, otherwise I I just wouldn't be concerned about it. Um, I just don't see any good research pointing to concerns unless like all of your protein is coming from soy. And actually speaking of protein, I I should throw in that soy is actually a very high quality protein source. It's pitted directly against whey protein, which is considered like the highest quality. And you have similar outcomes for muscle and strength gains. Um, as far as nutritional value, it's probably number one amongst the legumes like it's just it's a powerhouse food and it's not something to really shy away from of course unless you have an allergy or something yeah yeah absolutely yes it is a powerhouse food for everyone listening it is a great source of protein and it's just it's a very nutrient dense food and like dr nagra said it's it's a bean it's not something that you really need to be scared of um and i think I, i really like too that you highlighted the fact that when the reason we don't recommend more than five, six, seven, eight servings of soy is exactly what Dr. Nagra says, because then you're crowding out other foods and your diet becomes pretty limited and you're not getting a whole lot of variety. And we know that variety is really important in any diet. And obviously we talk a lot about it in a plant-based diet as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So to kind of close this down, are there any, and you kind of mentioned this already, but are there types of soy products that you recommend to your clients or your patients, just kind of things that you often are often go-tos maybe for yourself even? Um, I mean, I don't know that there's any that I would recommend as, as just better than, I think it really comes down to personal preference. I mean, for me, I love tofu. I've smoked tofu, regular tofu. I love soy curls. Um, if you, especially if you want more of a meaty kind of texture, um, I have soy milk. That's my main milk of choice. I have it every day. Um, and yeah, those are really the three for me that I, I tend to rely on the most, but other people like love tempeh. I have some friends that absolutely love tempeh and that's their main one. And you know, that's fine too. It's, it's really up to you. I, I wouldn't really say that one is, is necessary or, or far better than the others. Yes. Yeah. I feel like there are diehard tempeh fans and there are diehard tofu fans. So yeah, I'm tofu all the way. Yes. Yeah. Understandable. Well, Dr. Nagra, if someone's looking to connect with you on social media or visit your website, where is the best place that they can do that? Yeah. So I have a website, drmatthewnagra.com. Also have a newsletter send out once a month. You can uh, sign up there just for things like this, you know, new podcasts, whatever drops, we, we throw it in there. And then I've got uh, Instagram. That's where I'm most active. So at Dr. Matthew Nagra, so dr.matthewnagra. 
Um, also on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, you know, doing all sorts of things on all those platforms. So uh, feel free to follow and send a message, ask questions, comment, all that. And I highly recommend following Dr. Nagra on social media, on Instagram, especially that's where I reached out to him and everything, just because you are constantly busting myths and putting out evidence-based nutrition information when it comes to plant-based eating. And I think in this world of we're constantly getting information from various people, it's really helpful to have just go-to sources that we know are providing valuable and evidence-based information, which can be hard to find. So highly recommend it because I love your reels and all that stuff that you put out. Thank you. That's what I do. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge on soy. You're welcome. Thanks for having me and hope, uh, hope people took something from that. Thank you so much for listening to the Plant-Centered and Thriving Podcast today. If you found this episode inspiring, please share it with a friend or post it on social media and tag me so I can personally say thank you. Until next time, keep thriving.